0: Maybe accessing the DMT realm on my lunch break isn't conducive to a nine-to-five. It makes the temporary nature of existence something that is beautiful. Like We live in a reality that runs on a contract of contrasts.
1: Is happiness truly constant, or is that just, that's not life?
0: We are all destined to become a memory, just a notion at some point. And so can we look this thing in the face and say, I see you, I hear you, and because of you, I'm going to live
1: I do want to, again, thank you for being on here. And as I uh, already alluded to, I'm impressed with everything you put out there. And uh, before I kind of, you know, we tap into the the bulk of the conversation, I don't know if you have a a log line for anyone that may be hearing you for the first time and not really know who the hell you are. Do you have a a couple words to say about yourself so we can learn a little bit about you?
0: Look, I'm I'm still figuring that out. Um, You know, the labels and terms we use to categorize and define and describe ourselves they're an ever-changing landscape, you know, in constant flux like everything else is. I'd say that if I were to boil it down, I'm a registered nurse with a keen interest in plant medicine, psychedelic medicines, and it's about utilizing these, uh, you know, functional catalysts to alter the way that we relate to reality, because our entire experience of this life is not just our experience of reality, but our experience of our relationship to what emerges in reality. So, I'm all about, you know, unlearning so that we can then establish or reestablish healthy relationships with with everything. You know, be intentional about um, about living. And it's a uh, you know, it's a journey through consciousness that we're all in and nobody can map out reality for us. But if we can utilize the the ancient wisdom, the ancient lessons and then pair that with modern neuroscience, I think that bridging that gap can help to create a more cohesive picture for, you know, intuitive living that really just feels good.
1: See, we barely even got it started. I'm, I'm amped up already. So th- thank you for that, uh, that ignition right there. I think that that's a great start. I appreciate you tapping into that. And I respect how, you know, t- to boil one person down in uh, one question like that. I think you just did that beautifully. So thank you. I'm happy I listened to your most recent podcast. I know it wasn't dropped today, but I think maybe a few days ago um, on your, this might be helpful podcast. You mentioned something and I might be butchering this but how when someone's going through something I know I know this podcast about grief and death but any trauma or whatever the hell we're working through in life it seems like an unattainable task to maybe get where we want to be whether that be healing or whatever and then you answered your own thought about saying just start here start where you are now I believe is what you said and I think that's just a, an important transition into the conversation that I'm you know looking forward to tapping into and specifically with grief, or if someone's in a trauma, again, we don't have to get specific to grief, but how do you speak to someone about starting here when they're feeling overwhelmed within the moment of whatever pain they're feeling, if that makes sense?
0: I mean, look, that's it's such a common question these days. Is like, where do I start? What do I do? And it's important to recognize that, you know, you've already started, you know, you wouldn't be asking these questions if you had not already started. And that is the game, is asking the questions. And uh, Ram Das had this great little talk about, you know, doing the inner work and doing it in a, you know, in a quiet way that is reflective and introspective in the sense that when somebody meets you and speaks to you, they go, what is it about this person that they seem to be having so much fun and I'm not? And that's, that's where the game starts is when you start asking questions. And so... If we have a question like, where should I start? What should I do? Can we just rejig those questions to suit where we are right now? Instead of where should I start? What should I do? This, This massive unknown landscape of reality. What would make me feel good right now? How do I want to feel? How do I want to feel tomorrow? What do I intend to feel like? And use that really momentary state of intention to then guide our behaviors and actions so that we can then elicit the state of mind the state of being that helps to unfold and unpackage the next questions we have to ask ourselves helpful questions and those open-ended questions of like, where do i start it's it's not really a question that leads to the next question Life is a series of questions, and the mind is a tool for thinking, and thinking is often questioning. It's not really a tool for knowing. That knowing is like a a physical sense. It's a felt sense of knowing. It's when we turn exposure into experience. And so we have this abundance of information, and that abundance of information almost introduces scarcity into the mind. Like Because we have access to so much information, it makes us doubt what we do know doubt where we are, doubt what we're actually capable of. We hear all of these things like, uh, look at the sun, have cold showers, move your body. And people know this on an intellectual level, but how do we bring that into an experiential level? How do we use, even if you don't think it's very much, use what little we know and act on that in a way that is intentional, with my intention usually, to feel better, like you know, there's a notion that we should sit with our feelings and really get into them. And I agree with that, but I also agree that we can change that state. Like, I sit with my feelings so that I can understand them, so that I can better cater to those feelings and assume more agency and autonomy over the trajectory of this inner experience.
1: So uh, this is this question in regards to what you just said, I, I don't believe in a one-size-fits-all, but... I've also heard you say something about healing is not linear or dealing with trauma is not linear. And I think that's a very big aspect specific to grief. A lot of people relied on, you know, the five stages of grief. And even though from my understanding, the five stages of grief was specifically written for people on their deathbed. So it doesn't exactly apply to all situations. That chaoticness of going through a trauma is confusing and hard to understand. But I I feel like one common thing I've, heard from a lot of my guests is the idea that when they're in that, when they're in the thick of it, when they're really in the trenches of whether something just happened or they haven't taken any, or at least haven't felt like they've made steps to heal. What is that conversation either to yourself or what is that conversation to someone who is in it and just does literally not even see the light of the tunnel? So it's not even a question of how do I get there? They're just so deep in it. They don't even see a reason. Like what is your opinion on that?
0: There's an element of you know, patience and grace and compassion to bring into, you know, our own experience. There's no expectation on you to figure it out. There's no expectation or pressure that things are are solved and that these feelings are vanquished. But it's also important to recognize that we contain multitudes and we can hold opposing truths and rather than them be opposing they can be complementary like you can hold grief and feel grief and hold love and feel love and that sensation of grief is almost like love that doesn't have anywhere to go has no no outlet no node to connect to and so when we have that love with nowhere to go how can we give it somewhere to go how can we allow this this conduit of experience that is love To go somewhere to carry on that that energy and give it an outlet, whether it's with ourselves or whether it's with the the people in our lives. If we can find a way to act with the love, act with the grief we feel, that sense of loss can be alchemized into sense of purpose, into sense of place, into sense of belonging. Like that, that grief is unavoidable. It's a universal feeling. And you know i think recognizing that in those moments of, of amplified grief where you feel alone we have to recognize that that feeling of loneliness is universal it may be the most universal feeling and so when we feel alone we're more connected to the human experience than ever
1: i i love that idea of you know just cuz you feel one feeling on the, one side of the spectrum doesn't mean you can't feel the other simultaneously yeah, I mean, I never even really thought about that because it does feel like I have to vanquish one feeling entirely in order to feel the other one. And I think understanding both on some levels is important to the entire process, right? Mm, yeah, like we look at a spectrum
0: as if it's another linear line. Like, oh, I'm on the spectrum there or there or love is a spectrum and it goes from zero to 100. But this is a multi-dimensional network rather than a spectrum. And we have this brain... That is like a bunch of functional modules connected to each other. And those regions of the brain can all light up at the same time and different times. And so when we, when we are experiencing grief or pain or stress, we almost have this level of cognitive dissonance come that comes in that, that says we should be suffering. We should be grieving. We should feel a certain way. Grief should look like this. And. To feel happy in this time is to be disrespectful to that grief. To feel joy in this time is not allowed. It's not right. It's not morally sound. But we can be stressed out of our minds and still look up and laugh at the absurdity of it all. We can be grieving and experiencing the sense of loss and still see the beauty of life, the beauty that is there. And you know, I think that Buddhism is a really utilitarian mode of thought because it's less like esoteric and, and abstract and more just a really solid, effective way of processing reality. And, you know, Buddhism talks about how life is just this constant series of energetic exchanges. And, you know, thousands of years later, science backs this up. We look at, I'm looking out at the plants in front of my house right now, and there's several rows and the plants in the back grow tall. And then the energy contained in those systems, eventually those systems break apart and the systems die and that energy feeds into the soil for the next plants to take that life on board. And it's this constant exchange of energy and recognizing that that inherent life force, that inherent essence of being is what continues. And it's just the bundle of the self that kind of dissipates You know, there's that thing that the backdrop of reality, the backdrop of awareness that is aware of the thoughts that I'm thinking, that can hear the voice in my head, that stage of reality is what will always continue. And when we can find solace in that foreverness, it makes the temporary nature of existence something that is beautiful. Like We live in a reality that runs on a contract of contrasts, and it is only through that suffering that we get to experience a full spectrum of this this experience. And without the full spectrum, we're starving on some level, right? Like every beautiful piece of music, every beautiful piece of art, every piece of poetry that really hits you and resonates, it didn't come from a place of, of carefree joy. Often it came from somebody translating suffering into wisdom. And we come away with these things with, you know, notches in our belt, ways to re- relate with community, to relate with people. And through that, if we can bring a level of vulnerability into it, I think that's how we drop some of the masks that compress and hide our fullest expression, right? I think a lot of this is about expression, which is hard to do when you're grieving. It's hard to do when you don't feel good. Often the last thing you want to do is talk and speak and get things off your chest. But when we don't express ourselves, fully whatever that might look like the the fascia of our spirit gets tightened and jaded and it starts to develop like a a a shell this thing where nothing comes in but also nothing goes out and similar to you know like a, a bud that's blossoming from a seed it has to break the shell and there's a moment of resistance and pushing through that resistance but there comes a time when the pain of staying compact and bundled up in that seed is too great and we need to break free and that that i think that occurs through through expression being real how real can we be how honest can we be with ourselves about how we're feeling and what's going on because we find that when we allow that vulnerability to come through it creates space for others to do the same and the masks come down and suddenly you get to connect with people on this much greater level of of human experience because we're no longer trying to mitigate all of our behavior, all of our thoughts, all of our speech to be appropriate, to suit the situation. It's like, no, I'm gonna create the situation. If I don't know where the voice is, maybe that voice is mine. Maybe I gotta use this. Maybe I can alchemize this suffering into connection.
1: So when you talk about my interpretation isn't butchering everything you just said, but in regards to that exchange of energy, is that in relation to just and everything you just said, that contrast of life, the way it ebbs and flows and, and that ebb and that flow and one side of the spectrum support each other and it's important to recognize that and that is part of the process. And when when you talk about the mask, is that mask or I guess many, as many masks, but the first thing that jolted into my head is kind of this mask that I feel like we have to be like happiness is a constant i'm f- far from thinking happiness is a constant and in position to what you just said how can happiness be constant when life is an energy of uh, is an exchange of energy and it does ebb and flow so i think it's part of the process and kind of partnering with joy you know what i mean so like, I, is, like is happiness truly constant or is that just that's not life I think there's so much emphasis
0: placed on happiness, which is this wildly subjective, you know, notion. This effervescent experience. You know, the the the, the challenge is that we were not wired to be happy because happiness served no survival um, utilization. It didn't help us stay alive. We were wired to be not sad creatures, but certainly on edge. You know, we we don't have the same tools of danger we have this this mind and this mind is always alert for the risk it's always alert for the danger to be happy is to kind of have certain aspects of our awareness dimmed down like that amygdala that thing that is this threat detection system in in that state of happiness threats are not perceived with the same degree of risk i think that focusing on um on contentment is a more practical place to start because Contentment can be invoked and experienced and acted as more of a constant than happiness. Like things can go mad and I can still be content with this. Contentment is not this, this elation. It's, it's a, an acceptance and a presence with what is without fighting against what is, without wishing that things could have been, would have been, should have been different that they could be, would be, should be different in the future. You know, where are we now? How can we start with where we are? Can we invite a sense of, okay, this is where we are right now. That, that emotional spectrum, it's, it's what brings us deeper into reality. It peels back the layers of perception and we're granted with this raw felt presence of reality. And when we're fighting against what is, then we create this uh, this tumultuous environment within the self. And within Buddhism, they talk about, uh, don't shoot the second arrow. So life shoots the arrows at you. You get pegged somewhere. And you're like, ooh, that hurt. I got rejected. Ooh, that didn't turn out how I thought it would. Ooh, I don't know what I'm doing. And it's like we shoot the second arrow by judging ourselves for not knowing what we should be doing, by judging ourselves for feeling rejected, by judging ourselves for getting angry getting sad, for not being able to perform at a certain peak of human behavior. But if we can notice when we're about to shoot the second arrow and go, wait, no, that original sense of pain is enough. I can work with this. I can accept this. I can give myself fully to this state. I can surrender. And through that surrender, we allow some of the resistance to what we're feeling to away. And when the resistance drops away beyond that wall that we perceived before, there's only so much more sensation. Like, the resistance is what amplifies the, the discomfort because it's our own discomfort reflected back at us. And in that process, it's like it gets faster, it gets bigger, it gets more serious. But then when we look at that resistance to what we're feeling and go, okay, hang on, what what's going on here? What could be beyond this wall? Let me, let me take a peek and you go through it and you find that that, that field of sensation and experience there wasn't much more beyond that wall, that the greatest discomfort was the resistance itself. And when we get to continually recognize where we have resistance in our lives, whether it's through conversations that we have with people that um, that trigger us or inflame us, or whether it's the avoidance of certain discomforts like moving your body or sitting still, when we start to look at resistance as the radar, like that's where I should go, that's where I should look. That's when we start to become real masters of this domain, real, you know, navigators, frontiersmen of this map of reality.
1: I feel like I was having flashbacks of all the shit I've gone through in my life and trying to put on that radar of resistance because it's so true that, that that resistance really is a good tell and a good flag for maybe the areas that need the most quote unquote work for lack of better terms. And that really is it. That resistance is, you know, entangled with that judgment and denial on so many things. And until you can surrender, that surrender really is the release that is just feeling I've been trying to accomplish. And I feel it there. It's weird. Like, I feel, I feel like I feel the resistance, even though I can't put my thumb on it. And does it come back to full circle about asking ourselves the right questions?
0: I think so. I, You know, as someone who can quite easily overcomplicate reality, Um, I've found especially recently a need to simplify reality. And that comes back to starting with where I am. Um, Usually I only overcomplicate when I don't feel very good. And so that's the first place to start. How do I intend to feel? And I ask myself these questions when I wake up, what is my current state of mind? Because you don't know what you're going to wake up to. And uh, the philosopher Rumi spoke about when you wake up, there are different guests greeting you in your home. Sometimes that guest is anger. Sometimes that guest is sadness. Sometimes that guest is grief. How do we intend to meet these guests? We don't let them take over the house. We don't let them run the show. We are the host. How can I make this anger feel heard and validated and softened How can I allow this frustration to feel safe and secure and at peace and contentment with all of this? How can I greet myself so that I can turn that, that angry guest into somebody who is actually okay with things? And so what is my current state of mind and what is my intended state of mind? And these states of mind, they are, again, not a linear thing, but A state is something that reveals itself when the conditions are appropriate. And so rather than looking directly at the state we want, like I want to be in a happy state, I want to be in a motivated state. If we look directly at the state, we kind of get the discomfort of not being there reflected back at us again. You know, it's like we're overshooting and going straight to the desired outcome rather than looking at where we are and thinking, what are the conditions that allow motivation to reveal itself what are the conditions that allow peace to reveal itself and then those conditions are often engaging in things that make us feel good and it doesn't need to be any more complicated than that i know that if i want the state of clarity to reveal itself maybe i'm overwhelmed overstimulated anxious i don't know what i'm doing i'm not calibrated the conditions that kind of reveal that clarity first i got to move my body because that anxious energy is there it's built into our body to get us into a forward tilt so we move and when we don't move the body that energy goes straight into the mind and the thoughts do all the running for us but we don't move we don't do anything that energy just is accumulating in the mind so i have to move the body in a you know in a simple way in a way that feels good in a way that is accessible in a way that that is uncomfortable but I know that that discomfort is going to result in a net positive benefit for my emotional state and then writing my thoughts out because once the thought is on paper now I don't have to observe the thought from within the mind which is a difficult concept to grasp now I can actually see that thought now I've said to the brain hey you don't have to hold on to this all day you don't have to be mulling this over in the background it's on the paper there you go I brought it into physical reality. That thought is physical now. I can observe it. I can actually get a 360-degree view of that thought. And then from there, I'll speak to somebody, somebody that I know helps me to generate clarity, whether it's their peaceful nature, maybe it's their ability to engage in ration and logic and reason. Maybe it's just somebody who gives me words of affirmation. And those conditions of movement and expressing my thoughts on the paper and then expressing my thoughts to a person, those conditions, they allow clarity to emerge.
1: Man, I love that idea about getting, you know, greeted by guests in your house. Sometimes it feels that no disrespect to this, but sometimes I feel like grief is like Jehovah's Witness at the door. I'm like, just get away from me. I don't want to deal with you right now. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't, want to, you don't want to respond with uh, hostility, obviously. But I, I love that idea of movement and finding what makes you feel good. It does really simplify things because we do tend to overcomplicate, especially when we're not feeling good, as you just said. And I feel like that idea of finding out what feel and I think there's a balance of certain things make you feel good that aren't good for you. I like to think most people know the difference, but when you do find what feels good for you, it's like that first domino and it seems, to be like a chain reaction of this, that, and the other kind of lead you down that path. I I think these are all amazing modalities. I I, I do want to tap into your thought on, I know you're big on, and you've, for lack of better words, again, preach meditation, and you have a lot of things out there that advocate towards meditation, and as you mentioned, plant-based methods. Do you have any comments on either of those as being a great modality too, especially for meditation, which I feel like a lot of people have this stigma towards, like, I can't do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: And That, you know, is such a clear example of people fighting for their limitations. There's a term called terminal uniqueness. And terminal uniqueness is this kind of egotistical defense mechanism that in a, you know, an unconscious, a subconscious effort to avoid discomfort, to avoid confronting what might be there. It says, no, I'm too broken to be fixed. I can't be helped. Um, my thoughts are too loud. My mind is too scattered to meditate. I'm unique in my unfixability. And those are all notions that need to be challenged because they keep us still. They keep us stuck. And, you know, meditation is something that I, I've i not come into any single piece of confirmatory evidence that says that anybody can't meditate, even the most scattered minds, divergent minds. If you think you can't, that is not a reason not to. It's actually your greatest reason to meditate. And I think that it's important to um, demystify the process a little bit because, you know, meditation, although it can grant you these, these experiences of divinity and transcendence, the actual process of meditation doesn't need to be so complicated and it should feel good. And so, you know, part of the practice is don't take it seriously. You're sitting down. Like there's you know stories of these old Zen masters who would get their students to go and meditate on a rock for hours and hours and hours. And then the Zen master would go over there and just beat them with a stick. Right? Just like, I know that you were deep in a trance there, but you were taking it seriously. Like, wake up, wake up, <laughs> wake up. <laughs> and so like with, with meditation, the, the simplest way, if you want to engage in it to me is we need to develop our attention and our attention is, that is the frontier of control these days. Like if they control your attention, they control you. And part of the narrative, and I really do believe this, part of the narrative that is being leaked out into media, into the greater zeitgeist right now is, hey, it's not your fault. Things are really hard. We get it if you can't quit. Like even tobacco companies, they were the ones that said quitting cigarettes was hard to begin with tobacco companies saying, yo, quitting cigarettes is really, really, really hard. And so people go, oh, it's really, really, really hard. I'll never be able to quit. I'll never be able to do that. And so any notion that says you can't do anything should be confronted and challenged. And with meditation, it's the greatest utilitarian tool for being able to process reality in a beneficial way. The you know, this, the states of inner peace, the more unconditional contentment, those are just natural side effects of engaging in this process of meditation, which is just a continual refinement of attention and awareness. And to make it easy, sit, be comfortable. There's no reason to be in any pain whatsoever. Invite a sense of relaxation into the practice because this should be enjoyable. We should be relaxing into the body and start breathing count every breath, try and get to 30. When you get distracted, inevitably get distracted, eventually you will wake up from that distraction and remember, oh, wait, no, I'm supposed to be counting my breath. And when you wake up from that distraction, celebrate that shit, go, congratulations, you just woke up from the wandering mind. Go back to one, start again. Don't pick up where you left off, begin again. And that process you know, at first, you don't, you know, the first couple of meditation sessions, you set a timer for five, 10 minutes, something achievable, accessible, do not get up until that timer goes off. And the first couple of times of meditation, you get to 15 and 17 and you keep having to begin again. Anytime you get frustrated, remember to invite the sense of relaxation. Don't take it seriously. This is a practice. Enjoy yourself. But you'll start to get to 30 and 30 and go, damn, this is pretty easy. And then the subconscious mind starts counting for you. And then you're sitting there going, what the fuck? This thing is counting for me. And I can see the counting occurring. And that's when you get, you know, a little bit more distance from the me show. And that really is what, to me, you know, a fundamental part of meditation is, is getting space between you and that incessant monologue of the me show, the thing that takes everything personally, the thing that feels like it's always being judged. The thing that feels like it needs to be doing better it should be doing this it should be doing that you get distance and you can just see this little chatterbox going and that's when you can see that thing with a bird's eye view and go oh I see that you're running these patterns invite the sense of love and with the you know the filter of love going over your lens of perception it's much easier to make these positive changes from that perspective of love because so much change is trying to be driven from guilt and shame. Like, I'm ashamed of myself. I need to be doing better. I'm guilty that I'm doing these things. I need to be doing better. Fuck that noise. Guilt is an effective motivator, but only for so long because it's externally motivated. But love, that's an intrinsic process. It's like, I love that these patterns have done the best they could to help me survive. I love that these patterns have allowed me to navigate an experience that I didn't decide to engage in. I just got thrust into it. I love that this, this ego is doing the best it can to point out what might be good for me. But now that I see it, I can actually give it some informed guidance. I can say, yo, this is actually what we care about. Oh, man! And with that intention, that's where intention comes into it. Intention gets your subconscious mind on your side.
1: Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because first of all, I love the fact that you're saying don't take it so serious. You're literally just sitting down because it's so crazy the pressure we put on ourselves and the simplest notions. Um, and you made me think about that chatterbox that goes off. Um, the, the one thing I pulled from um, a book called the Untethered Soul." He, he mentioned something about The voice in our head Is like uh, Is like that roommate That we have that, that nuisance of a roommate And if you had a, If you had that person In your apartment In your house Talking all this shit to you Saying all this crazy stuff That we constantly speak To ourselves Like You tell this guy To get either get out of here Or like relax Or you wouldn't take him seriously Or whatever However you said it I'm probably butchering it But it, it's so it's uh, That that analogy was so important to me on how That is how we talk to ourselves And how would you handle That person in your own house Talking to you like that Yet we so constantly allow ourselves to talk to us like that, and that I, I love the way you you know you frame the, the com, how important is the conversations of ourself. And I believe in meditation, and I have been so undisciplined myself if I'm being completely honest on doing that because I do almost take it too seriously. I don't know if it's the nature of being human or just my competitive nature, but I do sit down. I even sometimes struggle with just setting an intention because I have so many things going on. I'm like, oh my God, I got to pick one intention. I got mm-hmm. I'm just sitting down and not take it so seriously because I'm, I'm taking that with me to the grave. So thank you for that. Well, I I do want to ask you a personal question. Is there, have have you had a certain low in your life that you felt the biggest obstacle in your own personal life that you've had to overcome and apply these modalities that you speak of?
0: Not an isolated event. I don't think that what I've done has come from a place of needing to have overcome some like isolated thing. I, I think that A lot of this has come from maybe, rarely growing up did I feel a sense of fitting in. It was always like I could fit in. I could easily, like, you know, socially dynamic, chameleon. I could go into any situation and nobody would ever sense that I don't feel like I belong there. But that sense of belonging was never really there. And, you know, my entire life I would live between countries and go back and forth and back and forth, which was... A gift, a real blessing. But in those moments, it's like as a kid, the embers of friendship need more consistent stoking in that order to become that fire. And it's like every time, you know, a few months there, a few months there, never having any sense of consistency and 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 place. And so, you know, a lot of these things have become this this effort to connect in some way, to understand more about this. And if I don't feel connected? How can I become connected? And, you know, there's also, you know, elements of like neurodivergency and, um, not realizing that many of the things that I was doing were just essentially me self-medicating without realizing it. Like I've even had moments with breath work where I've got like, Oh shit, dude, you're just using this to get high, aren't you? (laughs) Like this isn't (laughs) sick. (laughs) Uh, Maybe accessing the DMT realm on my lunch break isn't conducive to a nine to
1: five. (laughs) Yeah, no, you want to do that from six to midnight, I think, or whatever. Teach their own. (laughs) I've been there, believe me, I've been there. Um, You know, I I, I don't hope I didn't, hopefully, I didn't just cut you off there. Um, I don't know if you have anything more to say on that, but um, I do want to ask you three. I have these three questions. So I started this uh, Dead Talks on the Street series that I've been asking people quite random strangers in the street. And it's just been so, uh, it's been so amazing. So I thought I'd bring those three questions to the podcast. Um, and obviously never, there's never a wrong answer. Uh, my first question that I would like to ask you is, have you, have you experienced any loss in your life, no matter how close or far away it's maybe been? Yeah. Is there anyone that stands out the most? I think, uh, I think my grandparents and
0: that, that notion of loss with them has only become really uh, strengthened as I get older and grieve what I didn't get to meet about them, grieve the, the, this, the, the family that they were, the lessons they had, the experiences they held, the journey they went through to bring me into existence. I know nothing about any of it. And... You know that 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 sense of loss can come at you in weird times when you reflect back and go, "I wasn't there. I lost what I never knew I could have had." So I think that uh, much of my significant grief is is on the horizon. It's it's yet to to manifest fully.
1: Yeah, I think that is very. I think that's a very profound thought because you know when you think of death or loss, it. obviously it's coupled with grief, but that it's really perspective. And that perspective of regardless of what you felt then, the thought that you just expressed now is so vital to how you continue to live your life. Because making that realization that you lost these people without maybe asking certain questions or learning more about them, I would think from someone, uh, how, how I see you and how I've gotten to know you the last 40 minutes, you're very aware, you're very introspective. You think about things in a very beautiful way that those thoughts I'm sure whether consciously or subconsciously carry the way you live your life, realizing that someone may not be there tomorrow and it is important to fulfill this relationship now and live life now, ask those questions now. So I think, uh, I think that's very beautiful. And even your awareness of what you just said, that the grief is in the forefront because it is inevitable. And I think the more conscious we are about this, it's not morbid, it's not putting yourself in a negative state. I think it only fulfills the way we can live our life. So I do appreciate you sharing that with me. Mm, thank you, those are beautiful words. Thanks man, it was a poem that I wrote with Edgar Allan Poe back in. No, I'm just kidding, sorry. Um, <laughs> the, the next question is, are you, are you fearful of death? You know, Yeah, my, my initial answer
0: was no but that's contextual based upon the way that I feel right because I think ultimately every fear comes back to death comes back to this 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 confrontation of mortality and the 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 temporary nature of this experience and you know like I've, I've I engage in things that Bring you closer to death, like the, you know, the most incredible, the deepest flow states I've ever had were when life is on the line. Like, you know, you're, you're running a section of white water on a river that you've never been in before. And, you know, you do not know what's around the next bend or uh, when I'm running motorcycles and you're just like pinned behind somebody's line and to have a moment of, of distraction is to lend yourself into the arms of death. You know, I think recently I've discovered another aspect of death, just within the body, when your body is tight and unflexible and unyielding, that in itself is this, this this horseman of the apocalypse, this disciple of death, when you cannot move, when you're not fluid. And so death comes in all of these little forms that manifests wherever we are not supple, wherever we are resistant. And I think that ultimately recognizing our mortality and the beautiful flash in the pan that this a moment of awareness is, is what lends itself to a life fully lived. Death is one of the, the ultimate drivers of ambition. There's something within us that wants to leave a mark on this world. But as you continue to mark the world, you realize that we are all destined to become a memory, just a notion at some point. And so can we look this thing in the face and say, I see you, I hear you. And because of you, I'm going to live. I am going to live
1: Perfect. It's ironic that you just said that because um, I could say this because the episode's technically going to be out by the time this is released. I just had Neil deGrasse Tyson on the podcast and uh, he has a a chapter called Life and Death and I brought it up to him because he sees death as a massive motivator and the question I asked him was the same question I asked you and in his book he alludes to he's not fearful of death. He's fearful of uh, living a life where he could have accomplished more. So even though I brought it up to him, I was like, you know, just because... Maybe you're more fearful of that, but you could still be scared of dying. But nevertheless, it, it, is that, it is that motivating factor. Death does give you that motivating factor as long as you're willing to confront it. But if you keep pushing it to the side, you're missing out on a potential motivator. And I think that is a very, a very important angle mm. and beautifully said on your part. Um, the last question is, what do you believe happens after we die? Mm. Mm. <laughs> those are, are those good um. moves or what, <laughs> so what kind of ones you got? <laughs>
0: Uh, it's just a, it's the, mm that recognizes, um, the, the transient nature of my perception mm. and beliefs. I, I, there's nothing, there's no belief that I hold so tightly that I, that I will not question its truth. Um, but my current perception would be the awareness of this self, this essence of consciousness, this essence of life continues, whether it, folds back into this greater collective consciousness or not, I think that the self that is known as Cameron, this bundle of patterns and experiences and consolidated memories, that will go back to the earth and Cameron will cease to be, but the awareness of Cameron will continue. And I think that that's, you know, that's back to the meditation. If we can continue to tap into that awareness, we tap into something that is timeless and it alleviates the fear of death because there's this thing that is aware of all life and that thing in itself is forever. And I think that it's important to tune into forever.
1: I always say this when someone says something profound. I wish my mic wasn't attached to an arm because I would drop it. Uh, Thank you for (laughs) contemplating all those answers and answering them. What I can tell is very truthful, so I appreciate you opening up. And I do love the idea that you're not attached to a specific idea and that you know you're subject to change because i think that is a very especially in today's climate i think that's a very important notion to you know have your beliefs have your stances but always be willing to learn a different perspective. And that's why I love talking to someone like you because, uh, you know, you offer angles and size of a coin that I may have never seen. So that is the beauty of conversation and being open-minded. So thank you. But I, listen, man, I want to thank you one more time for being on here. It's always a funny transition to say, please plug whatever you may plug in a conversation about death and life. But, uh, I would love, <laughs> I'll, i love to offer this. I would love people to check out. This might be helpful podcast. So if you want to drop anything else you got going on so people can find you, I'll of course put your information in the show notes, but feel free to, uh, as I say, have any last words before we bow out.
0: Thanks, man. Um, There's a brilliant interview. I really, really enjoy just the the conscious simulation that you brought to the table here. Um, now you have me thinking about all these things and I might have to go and meditate on death just because that makes you feel alive. And like, you know, I was speaking to my buddy a few days ago and said that I do feel most alive when I'm actively dying. When you are pushed to the max, you get to expand those boundaries of what was possible. So that, that form equals freedom and you are farther away from death than you think, as long as you keep chasing it in your day to day. if you want to listen to my podcast, this might be helpful. You can hit me up on Instagram at Cameron Rosen. Uh, I do some meditations released, but other than that, I think that if anybody were to just follow that protocol of counting your breaths and you can absolutely become a professional meditator without any guidance whatsoever. So go and live, have fun. Thank you for having me
1: course man. guys for anyone that's still listening check him out check out his podcast his posts are incredible they're just daily reminders that um you know have honestly helped me and I sometimes i don't even know that i need it so it's very calming it's collective it's all the great adjectives that i could find in a webster dictionary so go check him out and i want to thank you guys for tuning into another episode of dead talks until next time